uh, for me, I say to me, Tishuba is supposed to be a time of inspiration. I know I'm here to inspire, but I'm inspired by how many people are here on a Sunday morning already at 10.20. I, I have to admit it. I didn't expect half the crowd. I expected it to be very few. Not because B'nai Tzhak is not wonderful, just because it's a Sunday morning. It's 10.20, 10.30 on a Sunday morning. How many people are out and dedicated to it? It's a testament to all of you. It's a testament to the rabbis in the Knees. It's, uh, it's, it's truly for me. It's a true inspiration to be able to uh, speak, uh, to stand here in front of you and speak words of Torah and inspiration during Aseret Yimeh Teshubah. I want to, for a moment, zone in on Kippur. I want to, for a moment, think about what we do throughout Kippur. On Kippur, of course, we're engaged and involved in stating again and again and again our sins. We have the Vidui Haggadol, which is stated for the Mitzvot Lotaase, for the Mitzvot Aseh, for the matters that we've fallen prey to when we shouldn't have, for the issues that we haven't engaged appropriately in over the course of our year, this past year. If you open to the second chapter, Perek Bet of Elchot Teshubav Haramban, and you search for Vidui Haggadol, what's the Vidui of Kippur? Again, the verbal confession is what it's all about. Kippur, a day on which we're seeking atonement. The Kapara comes forth from verbal confession. Vidui, Haramban says, Ha-Vidui Shinahagubo Kol Yisrael. The Vidui, the verbal confession that we have the custom as Am Yisrael to say is the following words, Aval Anachnu Hatanu. Vehu Ikar Shel Vidui. Says Harambam, it's three words. He's basing himself a Gemaran, Masechet Yoman, Daf Pezayin, but effectively, we could streamline the prayer services for Kippur. Three words in each one of the prayers for Vidui, however, we've sinned. That's it. Nothing more and nothing less. It's startling. It's just, uh, it's, it's a very unique line in the words of Rambam that that's what Vidui is. How could it be? Again, we're so accustomed to stating and explicating every single one of our wrongdoings, what we could have done, what we should have done. Says Rambam, again, basing himself on the Gemara, Aval, Anachnu Hatanu. But we have sinned. How could it, how do you make sense of those words of Rambam? I would suggest the following. I've uh, more than once had the, the privilege to be the other side of conversations with people who either recovered or were in the throes of a struggle with addictions. And I've been told more than once that the most difficult part in that, uh, in that journey to getting past addiction is not so much uh, the therapy or the groups or the decisions later on, it's the first stage. The first stage, the admission, I am an addict. The ability to admit to where I am. That's the hardest thing to do. To be able to admit to wrongdoing, to realize that the life that I've been living is not the life I should be living, is more difficult than the long journey ahead in fixing and making it straight again. Avala nachnu hatanu then of Harambam might seem simple. It might abridge our prayers if we were to listen to his words and to follow them dutifully. But ultimately speaking, those words, that description, that mandate of being able to truly say, but we've sinned, but we've gone wrong, and truly mean it, that could be the most difficult part of anything or everything that you'll experience in life. 
truth I remember, it must be at this point, uh, 17, 18 years ago, I was uh, for the summer, for a month, I spent in Rochester, New York. I was in Yeshiva University at the time. I went for a month to give words of inspiration and Torah to a small Orthodox community in Rochester, New York. And we were being housed, myself and two other friends, uh, by a specific person who on one day, may have been Tisha B'Av, took me aside and described his life story. And it was then and until today very inspiring to me, one particular detail. He said to me that he grew up and lived most of his life, adult life, irreligious unaffiliated. He said, but his mother passed away and he was sitting shiva. He felt he owed it to her. And the rabbi of the Orthodox synagogue came to uh, be to greet him during his days of shiva. He sat down with him and spoke to him for just a few moments and handed him a book. It was the concise guide to Judaism. It was just basic instructions. So this fellow, his name Robert Berkowitz, if I remember correctly, he said to me that uh, when the Shiva finished, he opened the book. He was inspired. He wanted to change. He wanted to set a life. And he was reading through it, and I remember it like yesterday, because he said to me, and I got to page 43. And he said, when I got to page 43, everything I'd been reading, I closed the book, and I put it on my shelf. And naturally, he had me, uh, he had me in the story. So what was on page 43? So let me first tell you what was on page 1 through 42. 1 through 42 described the things that I felt I was doing already. It was interpersonal things. It was giving tzedakah. It was being involved in the right context and being connected to Am Yisrael. So I got up to page 43, and it said, even if you fulfilled everything until now, but you don't know how to properly observe Shabbat, then effectively your life as a Jew, as this book put it, is not complete. He said, at that point, I closed the book and I put it on my shelf. I was incapable of reading more. He said, years went by. And in the back of his mind, every high holidays, when he'd step foot into synagogue, every week when he would go once a year to say Kaddish for his mother, page 43 would be ringing out in his mind. And he lived with the nightmare of page 43 until one day, Something inspired him. What he was capable of doing, and it wasn't simple, and it's not simple for us, was admitting to being on the wrong path. Those are the words of Harambam. He opened up the book. He said, he admitted, I need to read this. I need to make things better. The description then of Rambam, of the Vidui, of Kippur, the day which seems to be ridden with complexities, the day on which we're taking into account everything that's gone wrong, where we'd like to be, where we could be, could really be distilled to three words. Aval, anachnu, hatanu. Three words which might be easy to state, to use our lips and say, but difficult to actually mean. I'd like to, for a moment, just uh, indulge you in some of my own thoughts with regards to aval anachnu hatanu. Over the course of the last few weeks, maybe month or more, we've been focused on many different things, but specifically we've been focused on akedat yitzhak. Noticed it on Rosh Hashanah, certainly et sha'are rason, it was oked, v'hane'ikad, v'hamizbeach. It's a, a fan favorite in the Silihot every morning when we're reading about what took place at Akedah Yitzhak. We mentioned it in the Amidan Musaf throughout. Akedah Yitzhak has, and for good reason, taken up a lot of our brain capacity, a lot of our mind activity in the last several weeks, and it will for the next week and a half or so. Maybe a little bit less, maybe we should extend it further. Akedah Yitzhak is a foundational event. 
Akedah Yitzchak is when Abraham Avinu exemplified for us dedication, sacrifice, the steadfast commitment to God said and I will do. That's an appropriate theme for us at this time period. There's one particular detail though in Akedah Yitzchak I'd like to pull out for a moment and try to tease out the difficulties and maybe meaning that's inherent in it. You see, Akedah Yitzchak doesn't just end with Abraham being commanded by God not to sacrifice his son. Akedah Yitzchak has one last detail. If you recall, it says, Vayisa ena vayahar. Ram raises his eyes and he sees. Thank you, Mom. I grew up listening to Moharari's Kitty. Uh, I was told, as a matter of fact, I enjoyed it so much. I remember once saying to my father, you know who's, I love his Kitty, Moharari. My father said, Bradley Beach. I heard Moharari. He pulled out. Yes. Best man at my father's wedding. Really? Oh, you're a lucky person. So we have this, we, we treasure in our home. We have a Sidur with a silver cover that needs to be polished that was presented in the Bradley Beach something to my father with Mo Harari's signature in it. I said, have I ever told you that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, I have to show it to you one time. I don't have it, it's my father. Anyway, that's the other thing is him standing next to me. I can't mess up these pictures. Abraham raises his eyes and he sees a ram and it's caught up in the thicket. He grabs that ram and he slaughters it in place of his son. That's the end of Akedah Yitzchak. After that, he turns around, he makes his way back. I wish you could say happily ever after. Sarah's death is afterwards. But what's the significance of that part of the story? What's more, in case you think I'm over-embellishing, is one of the reasons that's given, and we kind of allude to it throughout the Musaf on Rosh Hashanah, to why we sound the Shofar on Rosh Hashanah, is it's to remember Akedah Yitzhak, it was the horn of that ram, <coughs> which we in turn are remembering as we sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, as the sounds of shofar continue to ring in our ears throughout this week. As the sounds of the shofar, as the Torah tells us, were once sounded every 50 years on Kippur, v'ha'avartem shofar teru'ah. What is it about that? What did it have to do with the storyline? The storyline was about commitment to God, about sacrifice, being willing to take my child, Abraham says, to sacrifice his child against all odds. We remember the last part? Maybe we should all, la'alenu, wake up early on Rosh Hashanah morning. Maybe we should wake up early. Maybe that's the way we should commemorate it. The last part, when the whole story's said and done, that's the part we remember most? That's the part we... Every year, we're sounding the shofar. Ashkenazim have it even more. They might not do silichot, but they sound shofar throughout Elul. They're thinking about that part of Akedah Yitzchak. For what reason? What's the significance of the happily ever after, the last part of the story of the Akedah? I would suggest uh, an explanation by means of, uh, of what was for me and is until today a moving small encounter, conversation with someone. This was 10 years ago. I had just begun teaching in the community and I was teaching a small group of men Gemara every morning. It was, I think, four or five men. And each one of them had, let's call it, household family names. Each one of them, you all know, you share their last name or your cousins with them. One of them, was different than the others. He had a last name that wasn't familiar to most people. It was a rabbinic last name, but not a Syrian, this community last name. 
the four other men or so spoke without an accent. They spoke like Brooklynites, like American Syrians. This one spoke with an accent, but he was a part of the group. And they accepted and embraced him. His children studied in the regular community schools. He was, for all intents and purposes, a part of the fabric of this community in ways that, had you not known better, had you not spoken to him, you wouldn't know that he was different, quote unquote, an outsider. And that's how I experienced it, and that's how I lived it over the course of several months. Then one morning, after we finished the class, the Gemara class, he took me aside and he told me he just closed on a house outside of the community in, in Tinek. So I said, you've been living here 20 years. You've been living here yeah, two decades, maybe even more. You've raised your children here. Are you embraced? What, what are you, what are you, what's in Tinek? He said, I love this community, and everything that people say about this community is true. Everybody says the gomle hasadim of this community, the ability to do for others. Uh, there's community institutions that abound beyond uh, imagination of any other community. Not too long ago, I, I met with a federation who were asking about the structure of our community. I couldn't stop mentioning all the institutions of hasad that we have. So he said, we have that. So I was never in need of that. So I was always financially stable. Thankfully, I never needed that. He said there's community organizations to help people who are ailing or people who are sick. Never needed that either. Thankfully, the chesed of the community <laughs> never came my way in that fashion. So, but I'll tell you what I did need. So what I did need was that on Friday night, once over the course of 20 plus years, on Shabbat morning, just once, just once, someone approached me and said, uh, would your family like to eat at us for Shabbat? He said, that's all I wanted. He said, I spent one Shabbat in Tinak at a cousin, and four families approached me on that Shabbat to ask me who I was, if I could eat. Not once over the course of two plus decades in the community of Chesed was I approached for a Chesed opportunity of housing my family for lunch. Now I know, he said, everybody has their families to tend to. I know Shabbat morning, Friday night are sacred times for family units. But once in 20 plus years, nobody ever approached me? You see, for me, that story is a paradigm of sorts with regards to envisioning life. We have the program. The program is the institutions we've built. The program is the tefillah times that we attend, the classes that we go to. Then there's the off-program mode, when it's not a community institution, when it's the person in your row, you don't know him that well, and it's turning to him and greeting him. Then there's the off-program when it's not class time, but you have some free time. There's the off-program time when you're away and there's no minyan. Are you waking up in time to pray appropriately? There's the off-program time in all those non-black and white situations <coughs> where in those circumstances the question is, are you rising to the occasion? That in my mind. That. That's the shofar. That's the ayil. You see, Abraham throughout his life, throughout his life, Abraham excels at noticing. Abraham, in every situation, raises his eyes and sees. It's the beginning of Parashat Vayera. Remember once talking about this in your house. You correct me on the grammar. I think I got it right this time. And so Abraham raises his eyes and he sees the three men, the three angels from afar. Abraham, program, nisayon, 
It's a challenge. It's a circumstance. He rises to the occasion. All eyes are on him. He knows how to do it. Abraham, he's on his way to Akedat Yitzhak. He raises his eyes and he sees the place from afar. Abraham. Not Martin. Okay. And he sees the place from afar. Abraham, in Nisayon, in challenging circumstances, raises his eyes. He carefully scans. He rises to the occasion. He knows how to capitalize. What about when all is said and done? What about when it's not on the program any longer? When it's not the Nisayon that God has directly handed to you? When it's not the Minyan time, it's not the organization that you're dedicated financially, emotionally, intellectually to. It's not a part of that organization. It's not a part of the class time that you've dedicated yourself to. What happens then? Abraham raises his eyes after the Akedah. When it's all said and done. He raises his eyes, and when the program is finished, when the uh, stage has closed the curtains, when everybody has bowed already, but the show must go on, Avraham teaches us from his actions the necessity, the responsibility in our own lives to notice the people from outside of your inner orbit, the ones who have different last names and speak differently than you, the ones who might not even be a part of your community, the times in your life that are not the programmed, scheduled times, but there's opportunity which is rich and ripe in them. That's what the shofar which rings out throughout this time period is reminiscent and reminding us of. It's the ability, as we say, aval anachno hatano, to not just look at the details of every single sin we've lo'alein fallen prey to, but to think about everything in between, to be able to scan our lives in a genuine, authentic way and say, but what about off-program? What about when it wasn't what was scripted for me to do? And you all have great scripts in your life. You have great dedications, commitments. What about everything else? That's the shofar. That's the afterwards. That's the question of how do you dedicate and find meaning then as well. In truth, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the shofar we associate most with Rosh Hashanah, for good reason. That's when we sound the shofar. We might have it on Kippur, just at the very end, but that's, that's off program. That's the Torah. It's at the end of Kippur. The Torah, ironically, a little known fact, other than to Mo, is that the shofar is only mentioned, the word shofar in the Torah is only mentioned in the context of Kippur. Shofar teruah. That's the only time you have shofar. And Rosh Hashanah, you have that it's a zichron teruah. You have that it's a yom teruah. Uh, first in Vayikra and then Sefer Bimidbar. Uh, so you have it being a day of crying. Shofar, we derive from the idea that the teruah on Rosh Hashanah and teruah on Kippur, it must be that on Rosh Hashanah we sound shofar as well. Which means primarily, fundamentally, shofar is a Kippur doing. Not any Kippur. It's every 50 years on Yovel. That's when you would say on the Shofar. What would you do with the Shofar every 50 years? 
Have you ever been to Philadelphia, ever see the Liberty Bell? You know what the pasuk on the Liberty Bell is? Ukratem deror. It's liberty. That's the pasuk. You're supposed to sound the shofar, ukratem deror, and then you bring forth liberty, freedom. Freedom to who? Freedom to the slaves. Any slave which you once had was free on the 50th year. That's what the shofar demonstrated. I'm just wondering together with you. Does that mean shofar is linked up to freedom? Does that mean perhaps shofar talks about <coughs> liberty? In truth, the Gemara Masechet Rosh Hashanah Daf Yod records that Yosef was freed from Bet Zohar on Rosh Hashanah. So they have freedom. Masoret the Gemara has as well is that Avotenu were we, that slavery in terms of the Shibud, in terms of our hard work in Egypt, ended on Rosh Hashanah as well. They have freedom of sorts. Freedom. It's not what I associate with shofar in that respect. Shofar, I generally think, is a call to awakening. It's a call to being inspired. Maybe the Akedah talk. What does it have to do with freedom? How is it that we're supposed to be thinking and listening to shofar and associating it with freedom? I would suggest the following. Each of us have become enslaved, and not to another person per se, but to ourselves. The rote the day-to-day activities, the engagements that we're involved with, the decisions we've made have become part and parcel of who we are. Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, this time period, the Aseret Yemet Teshuvah is the time during which we step back. We break our own chains of servitude and slavery. It's during this time period, as you hear the shofar, you're set, setting yourself free. It's, as the Midrash says, a shofar shel herut. We sound on Rosh Hashanah, a freedom calling for ourselves, not for anyone other than for ourselves. And the very name, Rosh Hashanah, is, is an is a oxymoron. It's a, it's a self-contradictory. The word Shana means that it repeats itself. Shinun is something that's circular, that just keeps going around. Rosh means the beginning. I'm no mathematician. My, my, ch- my child, my wife, they know math. I, I wasn't always my uh, forte. I blame it on my seventh grade math teacher, but math was never my thing. But I do know something about circles. Circles don't have a beginning or an end. I know vex- vectors do. Circles don't, right? I don't get that right. So the, the circle doesn't end. So what does it mean? I got it? If you know what a vector is, you're okay. <laughs> the problem is, you know, nobody you know, else in the room knows, so I could get away with whatever I want. <laughs> you know, like, I woke up, I'm like, I know math, and I have no idea what a vector is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I know the words, but I have no idea what they mean. Anyway, so a circle, though, has no beginning or end. It's by definition, it's closed. So what does that mean to have a Rosh Hashanah? That's where we open up that circle, that circle of slavery that we've done to ourselves. We've just been repeating our own lives again and again and again without being able to stop. That's Rosh Hashanah, that's Kippur. Kippur aval anachnu hatanu. The ability to stop on Kippur and to say, my path this past way, this past year, my journey going forward will be cut off from that because that was hatanu. Looking forward, I've accepted, I became an addict to my own life. I've become addicted to the life that I knew, to the things that I did. And now going forward, the ability to appropriately close that off and begin something anew, that's the opportunity we have during this time period. 
I would just conclude with one last thought with regards to the freedom and the liberation of the shofar. The shofar and uh, liberation in, sen- in that sense are coupled with something else because shofar really is cries, is it not? The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, Lamedimal says that shofar is yevava. It's the Targum as well. Teruah means yevava, means to cry. Gemara has a question, is it ganuhe ganuah? Is it yalule yalil? What type of cry is it? Is it a whimper? Is it a sigh? Either way, you slice it, a teruah is a, is, is a crying. Well, what does that have to do with freedom? How do you couple all these ideas, the idea that we're crying with the shofar, we're liberating, we're starting anew? I'll just conclude with one, one last uh, a thought and a personal story. This took place uh, two summers ago. This uh, very much exposes not only my ineptitude with regards to math, but with regards to time and with regards to direct, you can put everything in one, this will encapsulate my life. It was during, and, and geography and understanding, I had a wedding, it was in New Jersey for the summer, it was in Long Island. I don't know why, I assumed that the wedding would take me 45 minutes to get to. <laughs> I put it into ways, and it was not, it was, it was I know, two and a half hours or something, it was just uh, at, as I called, I said, I don't supposed to officiate at the wedding, but I, said, I won't be there for the wedding, it's okay, well, you're going to be waiting too long because I get lost along the way, and there's no chance. There's traffic. There's no chance. But okay, they made certain they wouldn't wait. They were going to try. But we had another rabbi. We we took care of that. But I still need to get there. I want to be there for the whole pass. I so began driving, and I, I'll, I'm usually a safe driver. But I was just trying my best to get there. Anyway, over the course, of, I got lost. I saw my old hometown. I've made my way off of whatever it was into Washington Heights by mistake. I said, "Our old home." I, for no reason, I was just all over the place. But finally, I'm, I don't know, on the ways it says I'm 15 minutes away, I'm going to be at this wedding, and I'm going up, uh, what's it called, Grand Central Parkway maybe? I'm going up Grand Central Parkway, and I'm supposed to be getting off on an exit, and at this point I'm going good 85 miles per hour or so. I'm on recording, so we'll bring the number down, just 85. I'm going as I just need to get to this wedding, and I see finally that I'm missing this, uh, this exit, and uh, people don't think straight all the time or ever. And so I quickly turned. It was a last-minute decision. I wasn't missing another exit. I was almost at the end. So I quickly turned. I immediately realized that was a, a ma- major mistake. I mean, there was no chance I was making this exit. And staring right at me, and I mean this, as, as I made the turn, was one of these big barriers. And I was, there was no way of avoiding it. I was going straight at it. And, you know, in the movies and the books, they talk about your life flashing in front of Life flashed in front of you. No, but quite literally, I was going really fast, going straight at one of these barriers. By the way, in these stories, I just read a book on storytelling. You're supposed to deflate it at this moment, so let me tell a joke or something like that. You know, everything, I'm still standing here, thankfully, it's all okay. Anyway, but there it is, and and sure enough, I went straight into it, but instead of being made of concrete, it was plastic. It was plastic, maybe water in it. So instead of my car going flying or being smashed, the barrier... I don't know, somewhere far away, but I've, I've of course, spun around a few times. I pulled it off of the highway, and as I'm making my way to this, the wedding, I couldn't comport myself, I couldn't compose myself. I pulled over to the side of the road, and it was a true story. I pulled over to the side of the road, and instinctively, just naturally, I began crying. And I began crying and reflecting back and thinking about why I cried. I really, it was like a hearty cry. It was like, a, you know, when you're a child and you really get it out in the crying. Mm-hmm. It was a crying, I think, of rebirth. It was a crying of freedom. I really thought it was over. I really was going so fast at that barrier. There was no chance I was continuing. The 
freedom was almost like a baby being born. It was like beginning something new. The shofar then of this time period of Rosh Hashanah, of Kippur, of that liberation of the slaves of our own servitude then gets coupled with crying. If we're truly rebirthing ourselves, if we're able to say, if we're able to admit to ourselves we've been caught up in this loop called Shana, if everything and anything we've done in our life has only been a part of the program. We've done what we've determined we should be doing. When we stepped out of that, we didn't know what to do. When it was the guy, we didn't know his name, we didn't pay attention, but the people we knew, we paid attention to. When it was the class time, we were dedicated. Outside of it, not so much. When that became our life, when Rosh Hashanah, when Kippur more specifically now comes around, the ability to liberate ourselves from that, to truly mean aval anachnu hatan, just three words, just three words which are packed with meaning, with emotion, is the ability to truly cry, to cry because we're beginning anew, because we are freeing ourselves of that road, of that program we've created for ourselves this past year. Please, God, you hear us, and we should all be zoche to merit a life of being nechtav b'sifre hasadikim v'hasidim. We should be written in the sefer ha'chaim, and we should only spend many years together learning Torah. Amen.